Last week, I began a two-part series on encouragement to you, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ here at Carriage Lane, as my last sermons to you as I retire today. And I wanted to preach from these two texts because they've been meaningful to me and challenging to me over the years. And so I hope that you'll be encouraged by them and challenged by them as well as you continue on pursuing your spiritual journey with Christ. Last week I preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, that we should have our confidence in our union with Christ. And therefore, believers ought to boast in Christ. We ought to glory in all that we have in Him and the blessings that come from our union with Christ. Well, today I want to take you to a text at the end of the epistle of 2 Peter. But before we get to that text, let's look a little bit at the context of this text. Peter probably wrote this letter from Rome between 64 AD to 67 AD, and he wrote this letter from a prison cell. He was in prison for his faith, for preaching the gospel, and it was during the persecution of Emperor Nero, and if you know anything about history, you know Nero was particularly harsh against Christians, persecuting them, killing them, torturing them. Well, It was during this persecution that Peter wrote this letter, and it was not long before his own execution. It's his final exhortation to the church, and he urges them to live a life pleasing to the Lord, and he also is writing to combat false teaching that had infiltrated the churches, false teaching that there was this secret knowledge that had had to be added to knowing Christ that would save you, a secret knowledge that only these false teachers had. They also taught that Christ was not coming again. And they taught immorality, that immorality was okay. And so Peter is calling them back to looking to Christ and his grace alone for their salvation revealed in the scriptures, and that this will also lead to holy living. You know, the last words of a person can have great meaning and power, especially the last words of the Apostle Peter, Jesus' beloved apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are focusing on today, Peter's last words. Now, if you recall, when Peter was younger and Jesus was here on this earth and Peter followed him as his disciple, he was impetuous. He was a man who boasted often. He was overconfident in his faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. He told Jesus that he would never leave him, never forsake him, unto death. Well, Jesus predicted the night that he was betrayed that Peter would deny him three times. And that indeed is what happened after Jesus was arrested and during his trial. Peter denied Jesus and he was ashamed. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus had a meal with Peter. And he asked Peter three times, do you love me? 
And each time Peter affirmed that he did love Jesus. And Jesus, each time after his answer, told him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And he reinstated Peter. And then he told Peter that he would make the supreme sacrifice someday and become a martyr, fulfilling this task. And tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, and yet he insisted that he be crucified upside down to show his unworthiness to be crucified like Jesus. Peter knew firsthand the consequences of immaturity, and he was eager to feed Jesus' sheep, the church, and spare them the pain that he had known of infidelity to Christ. And so Peter's last words are in fulfillment of this task that Jesus gave him to feed the sheep, to exhort them to grow. So please follow along with me as I read 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. I'll be reading 17 before 18, although we'll be focusing on 18, to provide immediate context. Hear the word of the Lord. You therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To, whom, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, Peter is wrapping up what he has written, and he exhorts these believers in verse 17 that since now they know these warnings that he's given them about these false teachers, that they should take care not to be carried away by their error, and then to lose the stability of their faith. And then he begins in verse 18, commanding them to grow. So this is our second point, when Peter says, but grow. You know, making effort in growing in the Christian life is a major emphasis in Scripture. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, like newborn infants long for spiritual milk that by it you may grow up unto salvation. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Spiritual growth is God's will for the believer. So, this church that's being persecuted by the Roman government and then being threatened by these false teachers they're in the midst of all of this, and Peter says the only way to deal with this is to overcome it by growth. When he starts off with but grow, he's saying, in spite of all this, you must grow. You can perhaps see how tempting it would have been for these Christians with all these pressures to retreat, to withdraw. But Peter indicates that this would be a grave mistake. Lack of growth means eventually sliding into mediocrity, hypocrisy, and even apostasy. And furthermore, it robs believers of the joy that we have in growing in Christ. Christian growth 
is like learning how to ride a bicycle. I've probably mentioned this a couple of times before. Our backyard backs up to the Braylon Golf Course and we're on one of the golf tees. And when I taught my children how to ride a bike, the only soft surface that was flat near our house seemed to be this tee box behind our home. And so we'd go out there at dusk and I would hold the bike And they would get on and I'd push them and I'd tell them, just steer straight and keep pedaling and you'll be fine. If you're moving, you won't fall. And that's true of the Christian life. Keep growing and you'll be less likely to fall. Growth is a sign of life. It's a sign that we are alive in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Believers have been regenerated. We're born again. We've been made new creatures in Christ. And so we are to grow in Christ. And the only way to avoid falling, the only way to avoid slipping back is to go forward. There's no such thing as status or being static in the Christian life. The great reformer John Calvin said, Peter exhorts us to make progress, for it is the only way of persevering to make continual advances and not stand still in the middle of our journey. They only would be safe who labored to make progress daily. Now when Peter gives this command to grow, in the Greek it's in the plural. He's implying that believers will grow together. It's a corporate thing. We are to make attempts together to grow as a church. And so believers are to give themselves to this process of growth in the Christian life. Well, how do we grow? Well, Peter then answers this for us by giving us this third point, the nature of this growth. The nature of this growth. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the first subpoint under the nature of this growth is that we're to grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, and we're also sanctified by grace. But in sanctification, we must cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. We're to grow in the grace that we've received, and we're to grow in the grace that Jesus continues to provide us. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, which is undeserved. When we think about grace, we're to think about God's sovereign determination, his decision before the beginning of time to treat us with grace, not according to what we deserve, but out of his unconditional love for us. Now, to understand the absolute necessity of God's grace We need to understand man's hopeless condition before God. The first man, Adam, was our representative. And he disobeyed God in the garden. And he plunged mankind into sin. And therefore all people are born with a sinful nature separated from God under his wrath and judgment. And this is because God is utterly holy. 
He demands perfect obedience to all of his commandments, not only in our motives and thoughts, but in our words and in our actions. He cannot accept in his presence anyone who is unrighteous, and we fall miserably short of his commandments. And furthermore, God is the judge. He is absolutely just in his judgment. He cannot overlook any of our sins. They must be judged in hell. Every sin is a debt that people cannot repay and cannot atone for. That is the utter hopeless condition of man and why we need God's grace. We cannot work our way back to God. But God has determined to save his people from this dilemma. Out of love, he made a promise, a covenant of grace that he would provide the righteousness that he requires, that he would provide forgiveness of sins through an atoning sacrifice. And he did this through sending his son to this world. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came to this world, became a man, took on a human nature without sin, yet remained God in order to be our substitute. He came to live a perfect life in our place, to fulfill all the commandments perfectly in order to give us his righteous record. He also came to atone for our sins by going to the cross. There he was the perfect sacrifice. He took on our record of sins and suffered the judgment that we deserve through experiencing hell for us through his suffering, his bleeding, and his death. But praise God, on the third day he rose from the dead, having victory over the devil and death and sin for us, proving who he was, God the Son and the Messiah. And then he ascended back to heaven to reign on his throne on behalf of his people to intercede for us. And the message of the Bible is that mankind is dead spiritually. We are rebellious toward God. We cannot have true saving faith unless God by his grace gives us a new nature. That's called regeneration. And then God gives the gift of faith and repentance. And so when a person is born again and turns from their rebellion and sin and relies on who Jesus is and what he did alone for their salvation, that person has fellowship with God, is reconciled to God. That person is declared righteous before God. That person is forgiven of all sin and adopted into God's family. That person is given the gift of eternal life in heaven with Christ. And that person is also given the hope that they will receive a new resurrected immortal body when Christ returns. This is the grace of God provided through the work of Jesus, God the Son. And so believers are to continue to believe in this grace. And last week we saw that this means trusting in all that Jesus has done for us in our union with him. We trust in Jesus as our wisdom, as our righteousness, as our sanctification, as our redemption. Trusting in all the riches that we have in Christ, the blessings that we have in him, 
Help us as we face each day and each day's challenges and temptations and trials. We grow by trusting in all that we have in Christ, appropriating those blessings by faith. And we grow by looking to Christ for our growth. You see, he grew as a human being through adversity, through suffering, so that we would have his abilities to grow in all of our circumstances. We have the ability to draw upon his resources. The grace that chose us, that saved us, that delivered us, is also the grace that sanctifies us and will glorify us. We grow because Christ has already guaranteed our growth, because We were in him. We were united to him when he grew. We grow as we take hold of what we have in Christ. And growing in grace also refers to Jesus giving us his love, his life, his power each day as we trust in him. He gives us the grace to recognize sin and repent of sin and then renews and refreshes our faith when we blow it, when we stumble and fall. And he uses the means of the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments as we worship the Lord together and fellowship together and serve together in the local church. You know, the strange thing about growing in grace is that God does this by showing us more of our sin and our need of his grace. You know, it may seem like in the Christian life, you're not getting any better, but worse. Well, you're in good company because Paul felt the same thing. The apostle Paul grew in his faith as he grew to understand the depth of his sin and also the depth of God's grace. He wrote to the Corinthians in probably 57 AD and called himself the least of all the apostles. By 61 or 62 AD, he's writing to the Ephesians and he calls himself less than the least of all God's people. And at the end of his life, probably around 66 AD, he writes to Timothy and he calls himself the chief of sinners or the worst of sinners. So in other words, as Paul grew in his awareness of his sin, that he had left in him, he also grew in his appreciation and his appropriation of the grace that he had in Christ. J.C. Ryle says, one mark of growth in grace is increasing humility. Growing in grace is not growing for grace. We're to understand that we have this grace in Christ if we are believers. We don't grow for grace. We don't earn grace in any way. And that's why in our mission statement at Carriage Lane, it says we're called by God to glorify him. And then it says this, in response to his grace, the church seeks to make disciples of Jesus Christ and equip them for service through the four W's Worship, word, wholeness, and witness. In other words, it's in response to his grace that we seek to obey the Lord. Being comes before doing. We grow because of the grace that we have in him already. But we're not only to grow in grace, are we? Point B 
under the nature of this growth is that we are to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth is not one-sided, for grace and knowledge will advance side by side. Christians in this life never attain all there is to know about Christ. And so our goal is to know Christ all the more fully. And in an intimate way, we grow in our intellectual knowledge of him, but also our experiential knowledge of his character. We grow in our understanding of his love and all the characteristics that are his being God, the second person of the Trinity. We don't just grow in intellectual knowledge. We grow in our knowledge of him. You know, when you're in love with someone, you, not, you don't just know about certain facts about them. You know their character. You appreciate their character and their love. And that's what we are to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And we grow to know him better through his word. We grow to know him better through communion with him, through prayer and and the sacraments and as we worship, as we fellowship with one another. Charles Spurgeon said, rest not then content without an increasing acquaintance with Jesus. Seek to know more of him in his divine nature, in his human relationship, in his finished work, in his death, in his resurrection, in his present glorious intercession, and in his future royal advent, abide hard by the cross. Search the mystery of his wounds. An increase of love to Jesus and a more perfect apprehension of his love to us is one of the best tests of growth in grace. You know, when we seek to know Jesus, we're seeking to know his glory. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Cindy and I like taking walks together, and we'll at least once or twice a week go to Lake Peachtree and walk along the paths there. And we like to go in the afternoon, close to dusk, when the sun is lower on the horizon, it's just beautiful as it glistens on the water. And there are some of these beautiful homes that we walk by that have these huge decks that look out over the water. And it seems like every time we pass this one house, there are people sitting on that deck in their rocking chairs, probably the residents of that home, and they're admiring the beauty, the glory of a sunset. Well, that reminds me of how we are to, each day, take time to admire the glory of the Lord. And Jesus tells us in John 16, 14, that he gave us the spirit of truth in order to take from what is his and make it known to us. This is the job of the Holy Spirit, to glorify Jesus, to show us more of Christ. Peter said, In the first chapter of this epistle, in verses 2 and 3, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
who called us to his own glory and excellence. Jesus also said that he would manifest more of himself to us as we obey his commandments. And so in John 14, 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him or disclose myself to him. But finally, Peter not only exhorts us to grow and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but finally he tells us why. He gives us this doxology at the end of this verse. To him be glory or the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He's saying, point number four here, believers will grow for Christ's glory. Now, first of all, I want you to recognize here, this is a distinct declaration of the deity of Christ. For glory should only be ascribed to God himself. And Peter says, to him be the glory, meaning Jesus. Any good Jew learned the great words of Isaiah 42, 8, which says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And so this doxology is a clear confession of Christ being God. And believers are to be concerned to give God the Son, Jesus, glory. Now in this life and to the day of eternity, meaning to the day when Christ returns and he ushers in eternity. How does the believer's growth in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ serve to glorify Jesus? Well, the more we grow, the more we will be thankful. The more we will love the Lord. The more we will want to worship the Lord in all his glory. The more we will be transformed to reflect the glory of the Lord to others. The more we will want to be conformed to his image and put sin to death and live more righteously, the more we will also love one another, the more we will be strengthened in our spiritual warfare, and the more the church will grow. So what application can we take away from this text that will make a difference in the way that we think and act? Well, first and foremost, to grow, you must first have life. You must first have life in Christ. And so ask yourself, point number one, have you experienced new birth in Christ so that you desire to grow? Have you recognized your sin and your inability to save yourself, to be reconciled to God on the basis of your efforts? Have you turned from living for sin, dedicated to rebelling against God, and have you Put your full weight and trust upon Christ and his work alone for your salvation. You see, if you're not sure that you have that new life and that you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I would ask that even today you don't leave this place without praying, God, I'm a sinner. Please save me. I trust you. I trust in who you are and, and what you've done alone for my salvation. And if you are a believer here, then 
your nature will cause you to want to grow. And so I ask you this second question, is growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ one of the highest priorities for you and your family right now? This passage is a command. It's an imperative from God. And the will is involved. Growth is done by effort. It's commanded because our old nature is resistant to growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so it is a battle. And there are all kinds of hindrances. Sin is a hindrance. If you're entertaining a sin in your life and you're unwilling to confess it, that's a hindrance to your growth. Misplaced priorities are a hindrance to your growth. If you put more time into things that don't foster growth in Christ and ignore those things that do foster growth in Christ, then that's, those are misplaced priorities. Idols. If you're looking to an idol for satisfaction and peace and joy rather than to Christ, that's a hindrance to growth. Well, you might be thinking, but pastor, I've got so much going on in my life. I'm experiencing so much pressure at work or at home. I have emotional struggles. I'm discouraged. I'm so busy. I'm encountering spiritual warfare. Well, that's what the church in Peter's day was experiencing and much worse. What was his inspired exhortation to them? But grow. You can't afford not to grow. Grow or wither. Advance or fall behind. There is no in-between. Make it a priority to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Grow in understanding and applying the gospel to your lives. Grow in knowing the glory of Christ. And remember, you are not meant to grow alone. Grow is in the plural. We are meant to grow in community with other believers. You need your brothers and sisters here at Carriage Lane to grow. God has put you in this family for a reason. Therefore, commit yourself to the means of growing in grace together. The preaching and teaching of God's word, prayer, the sacraments, corporate worship and fellowship and serving alongside of each other. So commit you and your family to regular worship if you haven't done so already. Attending Sunday school, Wednesday night opportunities for growth and service. Commit to a small group. And remember, we will grow as we obey Christ, as we seek to use our gifts to serve the Lord. But growth must be intentional on your part or it won't happen. This is a unique time of change and challenge here at Carriage Lane. With my retirement today, receiving an interim pastor, and then searching for a new senior pastor. And I can imagine that some of you could be tempted to be discouraged or to withdraw or to be marginally committed and just want to wait and see what's going to happen. Well, that's my concern. But I believe that kind of thinking is not of the Lord. And if you have that temptation, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will resist it. You need to realize Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit indwelling you wants you to grow, wants you to grow along with God's people. You have Christ in you. 
And furthermore, you have a great, wonderful body of believers here at Carriage Lane. You have great officers. You have great pastors. You have a great staff. And so here's my final application and exhortation to you. God wants this time in the life of our church to be an opportunity for depending upon him even more and for increased growth and service. As this was Peter's parting exhortation, I don't think I can do any better than making it my parting exhortation to you. And I believe God's will for you is to grow, but grow for his glory in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Engage in the growth process here at Carriage Lane if you haven't engaged already. If you have been disengaged for a while, re-engage with renewed fervor and hope, with renewed intentionality and faith. Work and pray for continued growth in yourself and for your family and for this church. And as you do so, I believe God will honor and bless you and this church and it will be exciting for you and this church in the days ahead because you will see fruitfulness. You will see God's glory and his kingdom grow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you didn't want us to languish or stall in our walk with you. Forgive us for all of us fall short of this commandment. We, we don't intentionally seek to grow as often as we should or as, or as with much fervor. So forgive us and renew and refresh in us a desire and commitment to continue to grow, to know the riches of your grace and glory and to respond with love and worship and service. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.